From the West Australian, it's Wednesday the 19th of December. I'm Ben O'Shea and this is The West Live. The West Live. The West Live with Ben O'Shea. Overnight, a Manhattan jury found Hollywood actor Jonathan Majors guilty of reckless assault in the third degree and guilty of harassment following a two-week trial that stemmed from a March incident between the actor and his ex-partner, Grace Jabari. Majors' breakout role came in The Last Black Man in San Francisco and he recently also starred in Creed Three. But he's best known for his work in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where he plays he who remains in the hit Loki series who is a variant of the supervillain Kang the Conqueror. Kang made his first real appearance in this year's Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and he was set to become such a big part of the MCU that he was going to lead Avengers, the Kang Dynasty, slated for release in May 1, 2026. But that's all out the window following the guilty verdict, with Marvel just confirming it's officially dumped majors. Now Marvel must choose between recasting the role like it did when Mark Ruffin replaced Edward Norton as the Incredible Hulk or just throw out the work they've already done on the character of Kang and move forward with a new villain. It's a decision that could have billion-dollar ramifications for the studio. Jonathan Major's lawyer implied the actor would appeal the verdict, but one thing's for certain, his status as one of the most exciting new talents in Hollywood is in tatters. Coming up on today's show, we'll recap the year in international politics from Gaza to climate change and help you avoid rips on Aussie beaches this summer. But first, let's continue our countdown of the 23 biggest stories in 2023. The West Live. Making news. And joining me now is Sunrise correspondent Matt Tinney. And Matty, we started going through the top 23 stories in 2023 yesterday. That countdown is set to continue shortly as we count down numbers 18 to 15. In 2023, Wagner mercenary group chief Yevgeny Prigozhin was killed in a probable assassination on board his Embraer private jet. He was once a petty criminal who served time in a Russian penal colony for stealing a woman's boots off her feet. Uh, Prigozhin, though, is now better known as the man who dared to cross Putin. Uh, After meeting Vladimir Putin in the early 2000s, that changed the course of his life. He became an oligarch and then the chief executive of this private military company, Wagner. Um, And for years, Prigozhin did the Kremlin's dirty work. Um, He sought to spread Russian influence around the globe, um, dealing with uh, Russia's enemies so that Putin and Russia could keep their hands clean. Um, And at his peak, he was regarded as the saviour of Russia's disastrous campaign in Ukraine. That's how critical Wagner was Mm. to uh, the Russian assault of Ukraine. Um, But Prigozhin was a risk taker. He was a pretty loose unit. Um, And earlier this year, he had a meltdown, as he put, it and sent his troops marching towards Moscow in really unprecedented scenes Ooh. during Putin's reign. Um, he said at the time that he was protecting Putin from a military plot. Um, it was all very, very mm. dodgy. Um, and Putin uh, did a deal uh, that saw um, uh, Prigozhin go into exile almost um, 
but it was always a strange situation because Putin uh, and Russia have had a long history of dealing with dissidents. Um, you very rarely get to defy Putin and live to tell a tale. Mm. Well, uh, he didn't end up living well, to he tell didn't. the tale. He didn't, right? And so then I he don't was, think it was a coincidence. Not a coincidence. Very, very suspicious <laughs> we'll when never his know, plane went I down. I don't think so. No, I, I, we will never know. Um, and it was interesting to see Putin come out and uh, and you know sort of give this glowing eulogy after yeah, yeah, Prigozhin's it was death. Probably pre-written. Um, I think it was probably pre-written. I think he'd been worked on it for a while. And but it was, ima- imagine if he had have stormed, you know, the oh, Kremlin, like. Yeah. Imagine how the turn of history could have been could have been so different. different. Uh, although I don't know if I'd like to see Prigozhin uh, oh, in the no. Kremlin either. But the, but the thing is, like, Putin's not going to be around forever. Yeah, that's right. So that's right. it's going to happen. Yep, and and I think uh, you know, in, if nothing else, Prigozhin's death in that uh, plane crash sent a message to other oligarchs and enemies mm. of Putin within Russia. Just you know, think, think twice. Um, yeah, fascinating story in 2023. So- now, this was a story that a lot of people probably found hard to follow unless you were directly involved, but the robo-debt debacle oh, yeah. was one of the biggest stories in 2023 and certainly one of the Australian government's most catastrophic policy failures. It started off as an automated debt collection tool used by the former coalition government between 2015 and 2019. It used income averaging to unlawfully raise alleged debts and half a million people were impacted to the tune of $1.6 billion. And these were debts that they didn't owe, but they were chased by these robocalls um, and to the point where it really got quite serious for a lot of people. Mental health impacts. Mental health impacts. There were suicides. Like There were people who were really, really deeply impacted by this. So there was a Royal Commission uh, that handed down its findings in July this year. They made 56 recommendations about how to ensure that this never happened again. And the government agreed to every one of those recommendations and there was a lot of rhetoric in parliament about just how horrific this was and of Mm. course the Albanese government took every opportunity they could to stick the boot into the previous mob Um, but yeah robo debt a pretty dark chapter in Australian political history there was a few big stories in pop culture in 2023 but was any bigger than Barbenheimer we're in a race against Barbie. Does this doll have a bomb? I know what it means. So that, of course, was the combination of Oppenheimer uh, starring uh, Cillian Murphy, uh, the Christopher Nolan epic about uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. And then, of course, you had the Barbie movie um, starring our very own Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken. And it was combining those two movies that just created something magical, even though they were so different. The films could not be more different, but people loved the idea of a Barbenheimer joint posters. They loved the idea of going to see both movies. They were both released on the same day. Mm. There were people uh, seeing them back to back. People seeing them back to back, which yeah. would have probably broken your brain because stylistically they could not have been more different. <laughs> um, now, did you do the Barbenheimer? Did you see both films this I have, year? I have not seen either of them. You haven't seen? You, no. <laughs> you know, you might Okay, be... can, can I please? Okay, I feel like I need to provide some context here. So I get up at 2.30 for work, yes. right? If I sit in a cinema, unless it is like Bridesmaids, Stepbrothers, yeah. that sort of comedy type movie, I will fall asleep and very early on. And so I just don't tend to go to the movies because if I'm in a dark space and it's comfortable, like 
yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. out like a lion. Well, you you definitely fall asleep during Oppenheimer because okay. it's a long movie and it's sort of slow going, but it's brilliant, brilliant movie. Yeah. I think it could well be the Oscar Best Picture this year. Barbie, very colourful, light hearted. I didn't love it as much as yeah. some people, um, but I, I tell you how much movie, uh, how much money they made at the box office. So you're talking about mm. uh, the opening weekend was the fourth largest in American box office history. Wow. Um, and in total, now that the dust has settled, the Barbie movie in US dollars made one point four. For billion, um, which has set so many records. Uh, the first movie directed by a woman to make a billion dollars that was Greta Gerwig, who was the director there. Um, just astonishing for that film, uh, mm. far above expectations. And Oppenheimer, which is really more of an art house film than a blockbuster, it made at $947 million. Astounding. How uh, much did they cost? Uh, did it cost, cost to make uh, that? So, uh, do you know? A Barbie and Oppenheimer both were sort of sub um, uh, one fifty million, I think. Okay. So they made so they made Mozart. very good money. Very good I, money actually, good. I must say there is a movie I did not fall asleep in this yeah. year, and that was the Taylor, Taylor Swift, Swift concert, concert film because I, I was dancing that. the whole time. <laughs> Fifteen. On June 18 this year, communications between the Titan submarine and its mothership, the Polar Prince, were lost an hour and 45 minutes into a dive to the wreck site of the Titanic. On board the submersible was Stockton Rush, the American CEO of OceanGate, the company that ran the submarine, Paul-Henri Nargelet, a French deep-sea explorer and Titanic expert, Hamish Harding, a British businessman, Shazada Dawood, a Pakistani British businessman, and Dawood's son, Suleiman. Now, authorities were alerted when it failed to surface at the scheduled time later that day, and when that happened, it kicked off an international search and rescue mission. It garnered global attention, but then, four days later, a remotely operated underwater vehicle discovered debris containing parts of the Titan submersible about 500 metres from the bow of the Titanic on the bottom of the ocean, and we realised that the submarine had imploded um, shortly after it commenced its dive. Now, this story just really caught everybody's attention, didn't it? It was a fascinating story and so many elements of it from who was on there, how they came about to being on there, to how it was controlled. It looked like it was almost like a Nintendo I, I type know. thing. Um, and then it became sort of almost like a, a meme type thing as as well afterwards, um, where you had, um, like, you had the Taylor Swift era's concert moment where she sort of appears to dive down and people were going, there she is going to, you know, yeah, look yeah. for this up. Um, it, it was just a, a fascinating uh, story, obviously a tragic story mm. um, for those involved. But, yeah, ev everyone was just wondering, like, how did this how did this happen and the implosion, how does that work and how much air do they have? Yeah. Um, and I felt like we were all sort of hoping for a miracle and, and it just, just didn't, didn't come. Just didn't come. And it was, a, it, was, it was a really interesting insight into how we consume news as well. Mm. Uh, there was a morbid fascination, I think, that captured uh, the world's attention around this story. Uh, and interestingly, I had a deep-sea expert uh, on uh, the West Live a couple of months later who actually knew some of the people involved in that submarine organisation. Uh, and they said that in the deep-sea research community, that Titan sub had always raised red flags. Yeah. People thought it was only a matter of time. Um, so that tragedy uh, certainly felt like it could have been prevented. Um, and it was one that we talked about in 2023. You're listening to The West Live. On Monday, we look back at the biggest stories in federal politics. But today, we're going to look further afield and review the stories that shaped world politics in 2023. And who better to do that than our foreign affairs guru, global futurist, Dr. Keith Souter. Dr. Souter, welcome back to The West Live. 
Thanks very much indeed, Ben. And so today we're going to review the biggest three stories that were shaping international politics in 2023. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with the tragedy in the Middle East and then go on to Ukraine and then I think also look at climate change, which ought to have been a bigger story, but is uh, getting overshadowed. But that's going to haunt us as long as the other two are also around. Well, let's start in the Middle East, uh, which all began on October 7, when Hamas fighters invaded Israel in an unprecedented attack that shocked the world. Of course, the problem stretched back much further than that. How did you see this situation playing out in 2023? Well, it's a pretty gloomy situation for this year and also, I fear, for next year as well. The Israelis have made it clear that they want to continue the campaign in Gaza for a few more weeks, if not months. Um, The Americans are getting squeamish about the high level of violence, um, but they're not saying to the Israelis, stop it, uh, which means the Israelis will continue. And I think also, even if the Americans were to say, stop it, I think the Israelis will continue to operate. Highly controversial inside Israel itself, because it's interesting that no hostages have been released as a result of military operations. Um, The hostages have been released because of uh, prisoner exchanges uh, that have been negotiated by Qatar. So diplomacy has worked a lot better than the military offensive. The Israelis are determined to eradicate Hamas. They may well be able to wipe out a lot of the warriors, but not the ideology. And I fear that what they're simply doing is planting seeds for a new round of conflict. The other worry that I've got is that the uh, President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, a few days before the October 7 massacre, simply said that, oh, the Middle East is quieter now than it's been for many years. So the American intelligence service, which spends so much money on spying, itself was taken by surprise by that tragedy on October the 7th. And when you look at the range of American responsibilities around the world, if they can't get their intelligence correct, uh, what hope is there for the rest of us around the world if the Americans can't uh, accurately predict what's going to be happening in the world? It it means that we're entering into 2024 in a very dismal state indeed. Mm. And you mentioned the response around the world. Uh, There's a resolution uh, that was before the United Nations Security Council, which has been postponed now, um, calling for a sustainable ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, There have been protests around the world, both uh, pro-Palestine and pro-Israel. Who do you think is winning the battle for hearts and minds around the world? Well, I think it's the Palestinian cause which is attracting Um, a lot more sympathy than it has done in previous decades. Um, I think that the more there is the focus on the suffering of the Palestinians, remember we're now at about 19,000 people apparently killed, um, the more people are just beginning to question uh, whether the retaliation has gone too far. And it's also, I think, a generational issue. I think that older people like myself who can remember um, growing up in the shadow of World War II Um, have a lot more sympathy for Israel than this newer generation coming through who are uh, who treat World War II as distant as say the Battle of Waterloo and Napoleon and this will play out in the American presidential elections where uh, many of those young people who are now complaining about President Biden being too sympathetic to Israel are potential Democrat voters so it may well be that these people come November next year 
decide they're so sick of politics, they're not going to bother to go out and vote. And so we may yet see a, a Donald Trump victory. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating point to make. Uh, and uh, although I think it'd be hard for uh, Trump and the Republicans to to use it as a real wedge um, based on, you know, sort of historically how American politics has gone. Um, in terms of uh, the situation in the Middle East, Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, it was a bit of a reputational black eye uh, when Hamas invaded. And as you say, it came as a complete surprise to um, their intelligence uh, operations. Um, how has he fared during this conflict uh, domestically? Oh, I think his career is over. I think that uh, prior to October the 7th, there was unrest in Israel because of domestic political considerations with the legal system and all sorts of things. So foreign policy didn't play into any of that unrest. Um, but then the unrest has been put on hold while the threat of Hamas um, has taken centre stage. But I think there are a lot of Israelis who just think that the, the longest-serving prime minister has just simply been around for too long and there needs to be a change. Remember, Israel is a nation of 10 million prime ministers. People have very clear views about politics. Um, and I think that um, Netanyahu's career, whatever happens in Gaza, I think is coming to an end. Mm. And now, while this was happening in the Middle East, it took our attention away from uh, the situation in Ukraine, which was the biggest story in 2022. Uh, and certainly the conflict there with Russia's invasion of Ukraine has continued uh, all of this year and been just as bloodthirsty. Uh, how have you made uh, your thoughts on Ukraine in 2023? Well it's interesting. Ukraine has lasted a lot longer in the fight than a number of us were predicting. Um, the Russians have as their secret weapon, and they've done it over the centuries, huge reserves of labor and, of course, huge reserves of territory, which they can exploit. Um, no one's invading Russia, so the second consideration doesn't apply. But the first consideration, huge reserves of labor, certainly would apply. And there have been uh, huge estimations of the loss of Russian life, which is a characteristic of how Russians fight their wars. So this is not a new development. Putin is in the, the tradition of the czars and the communist leaders, that they just squander Russian lives. And so we've had a huge number of casualties sustained by the Russians. And the Russians don't provide accurate figures on the total number of casualties. So one thing has been the very labor-intensive nature of the fighting. Secondly, um, fighting over the centuries, over the millennia, goes between an, uh, being able to attack or being able to defend. So, for example, in the Middle Ages, it paid to be a knight on a horse um, until the Welsh came along with their bows and arrows, in which case it paid to be a defender. So this pendulum of war moved back and forth. What we're seeing now, we're in an era where it pays to be a defender rather than an attacker. So the Russians attacked in February of last year, failed uh, to achieve a knockout blow against Ukraine. Ukraine this year has mounted what was called the Spring Offensive, which was actually a bit, bit later. Um, and that they then ran into the same problem, which is that it pays to be a defender. So all the three areas in which they attacked, on NATO advice, by the way, um, those three areas were all very well defended by... Um, anti-tank systems, by landmines, etc. And the Ukrainian offensive has failed. 
Um, it's gained a bit of territory, but basically it has failed. Um, so we go into next year with the risk of there being, um, again, another year of conflict without a con clear conclusion. And the problem for Ukraine is that their Western supporters are get, just getting tired. They're, they're just expending so much of their own ammunition trying to help Ukraine that you've got people now worrying about running short of their own supplies for their own purposes, um, as well as being very costly. And you've got a, a, a pro, in effect, pro-Putin movement within the Republican Party, partly spearheaded by Donald Trump, uh, whereby the Republicans would like to see the money uh, going to Ukraine just simply cut off. Um, so it's going to be a very difficult year next year. My fear is that we will end up with a North Korean-type solution to the issue. In other words, that, um, in the same way that we had a three-year conflict between um, uh, North and South Korea, um, we finished in 1953 with an armistice agreement whereby there was a ceasefire but no peace treaty. And instead, you've got one end of the peninsula occupied by North Korea, the other end by a separate government in South Korea. And my fear is that Ukraine may well end up losing 10 to 15% of the eastern side of Ukraine and the southern side of Ukraine because the uh, Ukrainian government will not be able to liberate those areas. And by the same token, the Russians won't be able to move onto the western side of Ukraine, around Kiev, etc. So I, I fear that we will just simply get a stalemate in that part of the world. Yeah, it does seem as though that is the inevitable conclusion to this. And now the final story we're going to touch on today is one that, as you made clear at the start of this segment, has not got as much attention as it probably deserved, given the stakes that we're talking about. And I'm, of course, talking about climate change, uh, which came to a point uh, in the past couple of weeks with the COP28 summit in the United Arab Emirates. When it comes to climate change, how far did humanity come to solving the problem in 2023? We're making very little progress. I'm sorry to sound like Greta Thunberg, but I think she's on the money. Um, I think that deep in her bones, and also the, the younger people that I teach, I teach uh, American students, and in their bones, they feel that the world is heading towards a catastrophe. Um, and certainly when you look at COP, which was the Conference of the Parties, which is the bringing together of all the people who had agreed to a UN treaty on climate change originally 30 years ago, and they then meet uh, usually on an annual basis um, to try to enhance the provisions of the treaty. Um, and so this year's conference was held in the Middle East. Um, next year it'll be in the part of the old Soviet uh, Union. I think it's Kazakhstan. And then after that, it'll be the year after it'll be Brazil. Each time they meet, it's to tighten up the um, emissions uh, going into the atmosphere. And every time they meet, they fail to make a huge headway. Um, for the first time, this has been going on now for 30 years almost, for the first time they're now talking about the issues of uh, phasing down, uh, not phasing out, but phasing down um, the uh, carbon energy system. So that's oil and gas, coal, etc. Um, so it's taken them 30 years to get to that point. So the situation is not good. And, and what I find intriguing as someone who comments on international politics is how often I find myself also having to pay attention 
to climate-related matters. For example, we're, we're very concerned, obviously, about the growing military power of China, and yet increasingly a lot of that uh, military power, particularly the army itself, is being deployed domestically to cope with fires and floods inside China. Uh, the same with the United States. Um, they have a huge base at uh, Norfolk, Virginia, which I've actually been to. It's a um, huge naval base. But when the Atlantic begins to get really stormy, you've got to disperse your ships out to sea. Otherwise, they'll just bash up against one another within the harbour. So in so many ways, the um, weather is intruding into everyday affairs, um, even just looking at today's media coverage of the situation mm. in, in, northern in northern Queensland. So, you know, we're being reminded all the time that weather is a real problem. And I think that the uh, battle to try to prevent climate change has been lost, and it's already now a battle to try to adapt. Um, and there can be progress made. That's what I try to offer a glimpse of hope to my um, American students at Boston University, I say, look, we, we can, uh, bit by bit, um, adapt to try to cope with the climate change issues. A great example of this is the Netherlands. We, a lot of the Netherlands is technically underwater. Um, it's under the sea. But because they've got an excellent system of dikes, which they pioneered, um, they, they've been able to reclaim land and actually become a major food exporter over the decades. Um, so they've been able to adapt. And it may well be that that's the lessons for us, but we've got to be ready to spend up big on um, adaptation projects like preserving coastlines, biodiversity, etc. And I just don't see the political appetite there amongst politicians who are just looking for all these sort of small temporary Band-Aid solutions until the next election comes along. No one's coming up with a long-term view about how we can make the earth safe. Uh, for adapting to climate change. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, political terms and uh, the appetite for those long-term plans are just hard to imagine. Uh, but, you know, when we look back at uh, the world uh, 20 years from now, we'll think, geez, maybe we should have done more. I think that's uh, the inevitable outcome there. Uh, global futurist and foreign affairs guru, Dr. Keith Suda, we really appreciate all the time you've given to us on The West Live this year, sharing your insights and teaching us a little bit about how the world works. We do really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a safe New Year. Uh, and we look forward to talking to you in 2024. Thank you, Ben. Last summer, 54 people drowned in 90 days along the Australian coast. Every single one of them occurred in an unpatrolled location, including 78% on unpatrolled beaches. Here to help stop you from becoming a tragic statistic this summer is surf scientist with the University of New South Wales Sydney School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences. They call him Dr Rip, Professor Rob Brander. Professor Brander, welcome to The West Live. Thanks for having me. Okay, so 54 drownings on our coastline last summer. Is the message about swimming between the flags not getting through? Well, it is getting through because plenty of studies have shown that I think it's more than almost 90, 95% of Australians know and understand the, the swimming between the flags message. So it's working. And it's a good message because nobody drowns there and plenty of people do swim between them. But the reality is we have so many unpatrolled beaches and the lifeguards, the flags, they're not up all day long. They're often not up in the early morning hours, in the late evening when 
a lot of people swim in the summer. So there's a lot of beaches and a lot of times and there's no flags. Um, so it's working, but not everyone's adhering to that message. And there's reasons for that, right? It's, um, it's often not an option. You might have to drive 30 minutes away from your holiday accommodation to find the nearest flags and, and people just aren't going to do that. Yeah, right. And what else has your research told you about why people are swimming at unpatrolled beaches? Well, we, we've done surveys of people at unpatrolled beaches. You know, you might as well talk to people and find out why. And it's, it's not rocket science. It's um, certainly in the summer and it's close to their holiday accommodation. So they're staying, they've paid a lot of money to stay at a beach. It's right there. Uh, people are also seeking out quiet locations away from the crowds. Um, so it's, it's not, or, or it's, their, it's the beach closest to where they live. So there's pretty obvious reasons, but when you do get a, a terrible drowning and the message that comes out as though it's, it's just another reminder to always swim between red and yellow flags, I think it's falling a little bit on deaf ears because you're ignoring the issue, which is that not everyone is going to do that. And mm. that's the reality. And I think we have to face that fact. So you can't hide from the issue that people are drowning on unpatrolled beaches what are you going to do to make them safe? Yeah, well, let's talk about that because you've been studying rip currents at beaches for three decades. Are there different types of rips? <clears throat> yeah, there are different types, and, and that makes it tricky because if you're on an unpatrolled beach and it's a surf beach, so you've got waves breaking, there's going to be rip currents. And if you don't know how to spot them and you're going to go swimming, then, then you're at a big risk. Uh, most, well, uh, a lot of rips sit in deep channels between shallow sandbars and they look like dark gaps because deeper water is always darker. So you, if you're, when you go to any beach, you need to spend a few minutes looking up and down the beach, look, look at the surf. And if you see these dark gaps, maybe five, 10, 15 meters wide, maybe a bit more heading, almost like a green path going out through the white water, that's probably one of these channelized rip currents. And when we get headlands and structures like piers and jetties and groins, you almost always get rips when the waves are breaking flowing along them. And they also look like these dark gaps. But you also get, wave, you also get rips called flash rips. Um, you just get a couple of big waves break, the water piles up, and it pumps that water back out. And these flash rips may only last a few minutes, but they look like turbulent clouds of sand. And you get a lot of those on the sort of the Perth beaches, the, you know, trig, Scarborough, uh, City Beach, and they flash all over the place. So they're, they're very difficult to predict and they look different. So it pays to understand that there are different types of rips and there's different visual signatures. Mm. And what should you do if you get caught in a rip? I think the best uh, globally and throughout Australia, the, the industry advice is really float. Um, the best thing to do is to float because it conserves your energy it gives you time to do the second most important thing, which is to signal for help. And a lot of people, strangely enough, don't signal for help. But if you've got lifeguards and lifesavers on the beach and you're raising your arm, they're going to come and get you. Um, but we also know that we've done studies that surfers do a lot of rescues. And, you know, surfers are surfing pretty much uh, everywhere a lot of the time and often on unpatrolled beaches, and they make a huge amount of rescues. So if you are stuck and there's no lifeguards around and there's surfers around, make sure you get their attention. But floating's always best. Mm. And if you're a bystander who's maybe standing on the beach and you, and you look like uh, someone's in trouble out there and they're waving their hands, what should you do in that situation? Yeah, so important. Last year we had uh, we had five fathers drown trying to save um, their child. I think the thing is, even if you if you see somebody in trouble and it is your child, the ten, you, you're going to go in. But please don't rush in. Um, 
you need to take 10 seconds and, and get somebody to call for help or get somebody to go get help. You need to look around the beach and look, is there something on the beach that floats? Has somebody got a boogie board or is there a surfboard lying around or an esky or anything that floats? Um, because if you're going to go in, you need to take a flotation device. Um, there's been something like 60 or 70 of these bystander drownings over the last 15 years, and pretty much not one of them brought something to float with them. So if you're going to go in, don't rush. You're already panicking, whereas that person in the water probably isn't panicking. Get help. Get something that floats. Mm. And just how quickly, once you're caught in a rip, can you get into trouble? Uh, pretty quickly. I mean, once you lose your footing, people ask me all the time, what does it feel like to be caught in a rip? It doesn't feel like anything because you're just going for a ride. But it can flow pretty fast, and, and you can go sort of 20, 30, 50 meters in less than a minute. And, you know, if you're not a good swimmer, that's pretty scary when you look back and you see how far you've come. And people's tendency is, is usually to turn around and swim back to the beach, but you're swimming against the rip, which is flowing strong, and you just tire yourself out. So if you're not a good swimmer um, and you're in the water, you really shouldn't go in past your waist and always make sure your feet are firmly in the sand. Now, looking back over all of this, uh, it seems to me that what we're saying is there'll always be people who don't swim between the flags. We have a lot of coastline. It's not always patrolled, um, and that's just a reality. So then it becomes about, I guess, being smart about how we navigate this environment. And so what's your advice to people uh, who are heading to the beach They've found a parking spot. The sunscreen is on. They're contemplating that run over the hot sand. What should they do first? Well, Surf Life Saving Australia, the national body, came up with a great campaign a few years ago called the Think Line. And the basic idea is that you get to the beach, any beach, and you spend a few minutes thinking about beach. You draw an imaginary line in the sand and you stop and you think about beach safety. What are the conditions like? Are the waves too big? Are there, are there rips around? Do you know what a rip is? Are there lifeguards further down the beach? If something were to go wrong, do you have a plan? And I think it's a, it's a simple message that applies to any beach, and it's kind of like you don't cross a road without looking both ways. You should never go to any beach with spending a few minutes thinking about beach safety, looking at conditions. And if we can get that in people's heads as a generational thing, that might be the best thing we can do. Yeah, I think that's pretty good advice. And if we can get through summer with as few people losing their lives as possible on our beaches, well, that is something to celebrate indeed. Professor Robert Brander from the University of New South Wales, Sydney, thanks for joining us and sharing this important message on The West Live. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back from 7am tomorrow. And don't forget to subscribe to The West Live wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to The West Live with Ben O'Shea. If the story behind the story matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver.